From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, small business lender Alica raises £110 million. The FCA boosts open banking in the UK by removing three-month re-authentication requests. And Mr. Gox, the crypto trading hamster, goes to the great wheel in the sky. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at primer.io. Welcome to episode 586 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Naz Ahmed. Welcome to your first time on the news show, Naz. Um, do you want to remind our listeners of your role here at 11FS? Thanks, Benjamin. Very excited to be doing my first show. Uh, so yes, Naz Ahmed, I'm general counsel and also head up Pulse, uh, one of our business units here. And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. Um, so making a welcome return, we have Richard Davies, uh, Chief Executive of Alica Bank. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Great to have you on in an, an exciting week uh, for your company. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. I, I can't believe it's been two years since the last time I was on the show. It was pretty all this COVID craziness. And uh, I think it was an after dark in, in Revolut's offices. So yeah, it's great to be back. It's uh, it's nice seeing people in person, isn't it? Um, whereas, whereas rather than doing it like we're doing it now on, on Zoom. Um, and then also returning to Fintech Insider, we have Sophie Winwood, an investor at Anthemis. Sophie, lovely to have you uh, with us. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, I am a little bit tired just coming off a, um, uh, coming off Slush, the big startup and investor event in Helsinki. Um, so crazy to be around lots of people again, lots of energy, lots of exciting stuff, but oh my God, am I not used to it? <laughs> <laughs> and Helsinki in uh, late November, December is uh, not the warmest of yeah, places on the planet. Minus 17 today. So that was fun. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, with that, let's get into the news. Um, so our first story is that small business lender Alica has raised 110 million as it quickens its growth. Um, this was reported in many media, but uh, this one we picked up from the Times. Um, so the funding round was led by Atalaya Capital Management, alongside existing lead investor Warwick Capital Partners. Alongside this funding round, Alica has also acquired a £600 million loan book of small business debt from Irish banking giant AIB. Alica hopes the acquisition will bolster its revenues in order to turn a profit. Uh, the new funding round will support continued investment into proprietary technology and relationship management experience. It will also help to provide the capital to support the acquisition of AIB's SME lending portfolio and drive continued organic growth. 
So investment to date in Alica Bank, and I fear I'm going to, might get corrected by the chief executive at any point as I say, say this, but uh, amounts to about £233 million, uh, ranking Alica as one of the top UK's top 20 fintechs by funds raised, according to Bohurst. So, Richard, firstly, congratulations on the raise. That's super exciting news. Um, why was this the right time for a raise? What, what prompted you to go to investors now? Well, listen, I've had pretty big ambitions since I joined Alec just over a year ago, as I really wanted to transform the really poor service and experience that our customer base of established growing SMEs get from the incumbents. Um, and I, I think to create a real scale player with great technology, great client experience, takes quite a bit of funding to fuel it. So I've actually been working on funding around for, for some time. So it was really good and announced uh, last week. How important was the acquisition of a, of a loan book um, to, to your growth plans? Uh, I think it's really great for us in terms of accelerating our direct customer strategy, as well as our profitability. But actually, I think the most important point for me was actually it was a massive validation of our strategy. Uh, so kind of a couple of things in that regard. I mean, firstly, we believe that our target market that is what we call established growing SMEs, the customers that might have 10 employees, 100 employees in their business. They sit really awkwardly for the incumbents between the mass volume and, and low complexity of consumer and, and micro business, and then the low volume of corporates. And what we've seen here is AIB do exactly that, so that they've, they've exited our segment of established growing SMEs and said they'll focus uh, purely on corporates in Great Britain going forwards. And then secondly, uh, we're the only digital bank that's focused on this segment and combining a, a range of, we think that combination of both lending and payments mental for this, this type of customer. And again, this acquisition has validated that because the customers involved had both quite a wide range of lending products and also had current accounts. And actually as a result of that, no other bank the detailed phase of bidding process. So I guess it's been great to accelerate things like profitability, but actually the, the, the single best thing for me has been the validation that our strategy is, is totally on point and unique as we thought it was. Very interesting. Sophie, as an investor, what's, what's your thought on this? I mean, the, the, you know, there are a fair number of banks active in the sort of SME banking, both in the UK and in, in other markets. Um, do you feel there are still really good opportunities for, for, new, for businesses like Alica to, to grow in that market? What, what's your view as an investor? Yeah, so I think the SME uh, customer segment has been underserved for quite a long time now. And while we are seeing um, a proliferation of uh, companies targeting this space, it's a huge market, right? And and so I think the more players to support this customer segment, the better. I think we saw an interesting trend during COVID where a lot of digitally native SMEs were started and are looking to fully um, kind of deliver their business online. And so building a financial infrastructure around that to support that is really important. Um, so, and, and having choice is important. We can't just have one or two players out there. Um, we need to have more people sort of, then we have competition to deliver breast products for the customers. So, um, no, really, really exciting time. Um, and, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll see this, this whole space evolve over the next, you know, couple of years. Thank you. Naz, I was, I was really interested to see that they, uh, that Alec has acquired a, a loan book. And obviously Richard will have, have, have perspective on that. But, um, what do you, what are your thoughts on acquiring a loan book? Cause you never quite know what's going to be in that loan book. Do you, um, what do you think? Sure. And, you know, there's always a reason why people are willing to sell it to you in the first place. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, I'm sure it certainly 
carries some risk for them. Uh, and I suspect Richard would be able to talk to how they've assessed that and decided to pursue the purchase. But I do, I do see advantages. Um, he mentioned the validation of their strategy, but I'd also just say, you know, the acceleration in acquisition that it gives them. If they were to try and acquire a book of that size organically, um, you're looking at months or, you know, probably more realistically years. So, you know, whilst there is risk involved, it is a very quick shortcut to acquisition. Um, I also presume that he feels he can manage that book better than AIB have done traditionally, which, you know, I understand it will it will have much more focus from them than an AIB would give to it. So not without risk, but, you know, you can certainly see the logic behind it. So, so now, I think you make some really good points there. I mean, clearly, if you are lending, whether it's buying a book or lending from scratch, like getting the risk right is, is super key. Um, I think an important point for us on that was that this book had sort of fully been through COVID and clearly sort of by time we're looking at it now, you're able to see sort of what's happened there. And actually, in particular, AIB had taken out any... Um, non-performing loans from the book. So essentially it's customers that come through COVID in, in good shape. Um, and just, I think, slightly more broadly on this um, sort of area, it's actually the loan book, but actually these customers also have a wide range of other services like savings accounts, like current accounts and such like. Um, so for us, it's, it wasn't just about a loan book. It was about actually um, a whole customer base that, as you rightly said, sort of really accelerates us uh, so requiring thousands of customers from scratch does take time. So for us, it was a, was definitely a big step forwards. Uh, the, the COVID point is interesting because that was going to be one of my questions, as in how did you factor in the COVID risk? But if you know they've been stripped out, it makes a lot of sense. Richard, I'm interested in this um, drive for profitability, you know, because there's always a, a trade-off in any startup of, you know, how do you push for growth or do you push for profitability? Um, you're, you're pushing for profitability, as I understand it. What's your logic behind that? I mean, obviously, profits are good, right? But um, what's driving your thinking? Yeah, listen, we are investing pretty hard in um, tech stills. So we're not compromising on that. In fact, we've stood up three more squads with the acquisition. Um, I think just Let's be honest, right? The economics are somewhat different for a business that's powered by lending than a, a business that's powered by something else. Um, in that, there definitely are proven unit economics for a lending business. Um, so, there's clearly a lot of bets being taken on, sort of, with customer growth, but no unit economics. You can create something that in future has massive value. But if, if you grow lending and you do good risk, you you make money. Um, so I don't actually with a business that's got lending as well as payments, I don't see a, a, a trade-off between uh, growth and profit. I mean, we're we're, we're currently scaling about 400% year on year organically outside of the acquisition. So there's definitely no trade-off on growth for me. Sophia, are you are you starting to sort of see a difference, or are you discriminating in your in your portfolios between um, sort of growth fintechs and and fintechs that are starting to generate substantial profits? Are you seeing any change in the sort of either your, your perspective or the market's perspective? In terms of um, profitability? Um, where, you know, where there's a choice between generating profit or investing more for growth, um, how, do you, how do you view that? Yeah, well, I think uh, we work in venture, right? So um, we're, we're pretty, <laughs> pretty pro-growth uh, where we can be. That's, that's, that's kind of our, our thing is enabling growth. Um, I think definitely post and during COVID, there was more of a, a flight away from you know growth at, at, at any expense. 
to growth with a view to profitability. Um, but really, you know, we, we have to back our founders to be able to raise multiple rounds to, to fuel growth, but with a view to a profitable business model in the long term, uh, because we're seeing that public markets are punishing businesses that don't have those, um, you know, the right unit economics at, at exit. And, and obviously that's kind of the end of the game is that's where we get our returns. So um, I think it's a balancing act. I don't think anyone has the answer. Um, and it obviously depends. It's very different, um, different business models, B2B versus B2C. Um, but I think, you know, the great thing about venture is it enables you to grow and not become profitable at the start to really kind of make a change quickly. Very interesting. Uh, Richard, a l- last question for you for you about Alica. Um, you know, th- there are a number of other you know SME banks in the UK and obviously in other markets. You made a really interesting point about how you're differentiating because you've got lending and payments. Um, how are you trying to differentiate in terms of what the bank offers, and you know, are you targeting particular segments? Yeah, so I think I'd start with customer segment as a start point because SME is a I think a term I, I use, but people shouldn't use because it's so broad. I mean, I think when people say SME in, in fintech, they generally mean micro business. So like what Starling does, what Tide does. And listen, I think those guys have done a great job in that space the last few years. And in fact, I'm an angel investor in a um, couple of businesses on that around the world. Um, but that's like completely different to what I do. Like a 50 person, 100 person business is like a mini corporate. It's got lots of complexity of multiple legal entities, multiple shareholders, directors, um, quite complex lending needs that are secured, not just unsecured. Like it's a completely different uh, segment. And so I, I guess when I say we're sort of unique, uh, it's in that segment, right? Um, we're not, we literally never compete with Tide or um, Starling at all. Uh, and I think they're doing a great job in what they do. Um, so yeah, for us, it's about actually pro- applying the proprietary technology as well as some human relationships to that segment. And then offering that full range of products, the, the range of secured lending products, the uh, payment services with the overdrafts um, to provide that full service and, and ultimately be the only people right now who are actually looking to take a real bite out of the high street, right? Rather than just do something niche. And yeah, I, I kind of, hopefully this acquisition has kind of proved the point that we are that bank taking, the, taking that bite out of the high street. It's definitely one to watch. It's super, super exciting news and a super interesting market. Okay. Um, well, we need to move on to our next story, unfortunately, much as I'd happily talk about small business banking <laughs> for hours. Um, so our next story is, again, uh, it's another UK story. And this is uh, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK has boosted open banking by removing the previous um, requirement for customers to re-authenticate every three months. Um, so this story was reported in, in various places. Uh, and, and this comes from Finextra. So what the news is, is that UK fintech firms will no longer need to re-authenticate customers every 90 days uh, for, to get continued access to their bank account data under modifications to the open banking rules that have been spelled out by the Financial Conduct Authority. So currently, British customers who access their account information through a third-party provider, TPP, must authenticate via Strong Customer Authentication, SCA. hope you like your acronyms. Um, they have to authenticate when they access their data for the first time. And they then have to re-authenticate every 90 days thereafter, a process which, unsurprisingly, results in confusion for customers and high dropout rates. So the abolition of this rule is obviously going to be a relief to the third-party providers, although they'll still need to obtain customer consent every three months in order to continue supplying services. 
So in a statement, the FCA said, we consider that these measures are proportionate, taking into account the level of risk. They balance the need to protect consumers from TPP access without explicit consent and unwittingly sharing data. And they balance that risk with reducing friction for customers. So to find out how this news is going down with a wider industry, we reached out to Nicholas Wenkan, Chief Executive of Yolt, and Damien Cahill, Co-Founder and Chief Operating Officer of Vine. I'm Nicholas Wenkan, CEO of Open Banking Provider Yolt. We welcome the FCA's decision to remove the three-month re-authentication requirement. Whilst this may be seen as a small change for some, we see this as a tremendous move forward towards the mass adoption of open banking. Requiring continuous strong customer authentication every 90 days creates friction when using services from third-party providers, and this barrier increases the probability of customers dropping off the user journey, ultimately hindering people and businesses from realizing the benefits of open banking services. Breaking down the barriers to entry and improving the front-end customer experience is going to significantly help open banking providers such as Yolt to innovate and help businesses and their customers unlock the full potential of open banking. We are really thrilled to see the regulator taking such a positive step forward. I'm Damien Cahill, co-founder and COO at Vine, a leading account-to-account payments provider. The rule requiring that open banking users re-authenticate third-party providers every 90 days was introduced with good intentions, but it has hindered adoption and led to higher customer dropout rates due to the poor user experience. Removing the 90-day rule offers the opportunity for an improved open banking user experience. By making it easier for consumers and businesses to remain connected with their chosen third-party providers, the FCA is removing a key barrier to long-term use of open banking services. The risks are limited due to the well-established and highly effective bank controls for fraud, both online and in-app. Management of users' consent will remain crucial, so open banking providers must ensure that their customers understand exactly who they are giving consent to and why, as well as how to withdraw consent at any point. The removal of the 90-day rule is a positive step towards the downfall of card payments, which are slow, cumbersome and vulnerable to fraud. Naz, let's let's come to you first on this one. Um, is is this a game changer for for open banking providers? Has the FCA been smart in its approach to this? What do you think? Um, I think it will certainly be important for open banking providers. Whether it's a game changer, I'm slightly skeptical of. Um, and I think the FCA has been reasonable, shall we say, rather than smart. Um, Sorry, that's a slur on the FCA, but I mean, I don't think I don't think it's a particularly like intellectually amazing solution, but it's a sensible position they've ended up in. Um, I think it will be important for open banking providers because, you know, obviously that's a very high attrition rate. Uh, this will undoubtedly help to reduce it, but there is no doubt in my mind that they will still experience material attrition even when re-seeking consent, just, it, it's just the nature. As soon as you have to contact the customer and get them to do something, you suffer attrition. Um, having said that, I think for the FCA to go further and remove the consent requirement from 90 day, from, you know, after 90 days, um, I, I do feel would be a risk for them. 
giving the sensitivity of the data involved. So I think it will definitely help them. Um, I don't think it will solve the attrition problem for them completely. I don't really see how the regulator could have gone much further than it has, though, than where it has done, though. What did you think, Sophie? Yeah, I think, you know, any step um, to increase a kind of consumer retention and adoption of open banking is a good step. I think um, open banking is probably one of those things, I can't remember the phrase, which is like innovation is um, like under kind of expected in the short term and over expected in the long term. And I think open banking is very, very much one of those things where we, I don't think we've seen much um, excitement, but we do seem to be at this turning point. Um, One of our portfolio companies, TrueLayer, raised a 150 million round recently from Tiger Global um, and, and kind of seeing real success and adoption, even though quite low penetration. So I think, you know, the, the, the real adoption of open banking is when the consumer experience is delightful. And so anything that can help that, um, I think, is a positive step. Richard, I imagine you're a bit too busy to, to, to really focus on this. But do you, do you think this is interesting news? Do you see opportunities in, 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 in your field of, of small, small businesses? Or uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, listen, this is like so overdue. Why wasn't this done up front would be kind of my start point, because like everyone in the industry said back in time that this would happen. Um, so yeah, good move, but like overdue and obvious. I think the variable recurring payments piece actually for SMEs is more important that was done back in August, which was a great move, uh, where you can kind of do things like sweeping and so on uh, under open banking. Um, but and I said, fully agree with what Sophie said. I think the phrase I always go to is like, I think it's Bill Gates I always attribute it to, which is like people overestimate the change in two years and underestimate the change in 10 years. And I think open banking is definitely one of those. Um, and I guess like attrition rate, yeah, fine. But actually really the issue here is activation rate, like now Dow type measures, right? If you talk about it in terms of growth type measures where like there aren't enough people activating, there aren't enough people being monthly and daily active users. Like uh, the 90 day thing is kind of frankly a little bit of a, a sideshow within that overall piece. But I do think the curve's picking up. I do think it, it's like these things just take a lot of time because they're, they're sort of multi-sided platform problem where you need um, like both the supply of good use cases uh, as well as the customer awareness of it and, and people to embed it into things. So uh, I, know, I, I think Another three to five years, it's going to be in a much better space adoption-wise. Yeah, I think it's that use case thing, isn't it? Is that, that consumers in particular, but and businesses to a, to some extent too, have to be, see the benefits if they're going to overcome some hurdles, if they're going to do something that's actually a bit tedious. They've got to see a really clear benefit, and I think that's perhaps where the industry has been struggling a little bit. There, you know, I, I take your point, Sophie, about TrueLayer doing some some interesting stuff um, of seeing those use cases of what's what's in it for for me as a consumer or us as a business in in signing up? I think the point around expectation is a very important one because, um, you know, if you were to look at the impact of open banking on the market share of the big five incumbents, hasn't really had that much of a change. Uh, but has has it created an industry which is chipping away and beginning to gather momentum Yes, it has. So I, you know, I think the point uh, Richard and Sophie made about judging it in three to five years' time rather than is it accessible failure now, you could have potentially a very different answer in a slightly longer time frame. 
Yes, I always think that question about, you know, is it is it a success or a failure really depends on what did you expect? You know, if you expected complete transformation of the, of the UK banking industry or any other banking industry overnight, then yes, of course, you were disappointed. But if you thought it would take a while, then yes, it's more of a question of, yeah, where will we be? There was an interesting comment uh, Anne Bowden of, of Starling made to the Treasury Committee on, um, sorry, the UK Parliament Treasury Committee saying that open banking has not been a success, which caused a bit of a reaction from, from fintechs, um, making precisely the point that you're making, Naz. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, any other thoughts on this uh, story? I, I just think that, um, I think, you know, I always remember when open banking uh, launched and I was thought the, the sort of payments use case was a bit naff. Um, <laughs> but now as a consumer, I actually think it's it's brilliant. And the fact that I can sort of pay into my free trade account instantly, um, you know, from my Barclays is, is, is a very nice experience. And the fact that you can do that through other apps is, is great. But we haven't really seen any product innovation yet. And I think that's where we're going to see some really exciting stuff when you start to use the transaction data to, you know, ena- enable different underwriting or different um, kind of loan products, you know, potentially kind of variable interest based on your expenses going in and out. Um, I think that that is still to come, but the uh, payments is the things that actually is, is going to like delight a lot of people when when that becomes mainstream, I think. Yeah, I think I think you're right, um, Richard. Is any of that is any of that invest, new investment that you've raised going to go into taking advantage of open banking? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's got to be about the kind of customer journey and the customer use case. And I think right now the adoption is not there to justify kind of putting it in the customer journey for lending. Um, also, in SME lending, the government did something pretty good back in 2017 when they did something called commercial credit data sharing, where they forced sharing of a bunch of um, information about the current account via the CRAs, um, which actually gives you quite a lot of what open banking would. But I, I mean, I do think there is, as Sophie says, right, there's, there's real value in that um, that richness of data. Uh, but I think I mean, putting what might be an unexpected process step into a customer journey for certainly our type of lending, where it's like I mean, half a million pounds, million pounds type loans, um, if me, I, it needs the adoption rate and the, the trust factor to go up a bit more before I want to go there because it's just not really the customer expectation right now. Fantastic. Okay, well, we're just going to take a quick pause um, while you hear from our sponsors and we'll be back very shortly. At SAS, they help their customers make banking simple, safe and rewarding for everybody. They support banks in their goal to treat every customer as individual, combining data from across the bank with external information and real-time context. They deliver unique insights and a deep understanding of customers' needs. By applying these insights at the right time via the right channel, they help make every customer engagement with the bank a relevant, valuable, and seamless experience. SaaS enables banks to embed real-time intelligence in every interaction, helping them make smarter, faster decisions that transform customer experience. To find out more, search SaaS Banking. Okay, welcome back. Our next story is that the British Business Bank has found that UK venture capital fund performance has increased. Uh, This story came from the Fintech Times. Uh, New market research from the British Business Bank, which is the UK government's economic development bank, has shown that the performance of UK venture capital funds has increased sharply over the past year. Higher company valuations, combined with strong exit activity in 2020 and 2021, 
has contributed to a material uplift in VC financial returns. The Bank's Fund Manager survey showed fund managers reported positive views on the quality of investments available and current exit conditions. However, a high proportion of fund managers also reported high levels of competition for deals, which may suggest these high valuations might not be sustained until exit. Historically, uh, American VC financial returns were considered by many in the VC industry to be substantially higher than the returns of uh, funds in Europe, including the UK. However, analysis of the data by the British Business Bank report suggests that this is not the case and that returns have actually been very similar since 2002. So to hear a little bit more about this new report, uh, we reached out to Matt Addy, Director of Economics at the British Business Bank. Our latest research on venture capital returns is now available, drawing on what we believe is the most comprehensive data set on UK VC refunds. Our key findings are as follows. First, the data shows UK funds launching from 2002 to 2016 are now delivering a returns multiple in excess of two. This is a sharp increase in 2021, driven by higher pre-money valuations and strong exit activity. Second, UK funds' performance now more closely matches that in the US, helping to dispel the perception that greater returns are available to investors in US VC. Finally, our survey of market participants provides further evidence of a strong market. 97% were positive on the quality of investments available, closely matched by 93% positive on the current exiting conditions. Unsurprisingly, this is leading to a high level of competition for deals. We hope this is useful not only to managers looking to compare their performance with others in the market, but also to investors looking to increase their allocations to UK VC or even to enter the market for the first time. Sophie, let's let's come to you first on this as as, as an investor. Um, does this match what you're seeing out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a uh... It's a very competitive market, which I think is a great thing if you're a founder. So very jealous of, of all the founders out there who've started a company in the last year or two. Um, yeah, there's there's just a, a lot of capital in the market at the moment, both from traditional VCs, but you're also seeing, um, you know, the likes of other large asset managers entering space like um, like Tiger Global, um, and uh, and with that kind of increase in capital and um, it means that we're all fighting after the same deals and that that ultimately will will push up valuations um and and yeah it's like we've just the the valuations have have really increased in the last sort of two years um and whether that's sustainable or not is a is a question we're all asking ourselves but you know everyone wants to be in the best deals um and so being disciplined about valuation is is quite tricky at the moment Naz, what's your thoughts on this? Because, you know, there was, there was a lot of fear a couple of years ago that, that Brexit in particular and, you know, British banks losing passporting rights and so on would uh, would definitely hinder, the, you know, fintechs in the operating in the UK because suddenly they would be much harder for them to access the European markets and so on. But this, you know, these valuations suggest that maybe that's not the case and that UK fintech hasn't been hit that hard. What what do you? I mean, I know nobody wants to rehash Brexit, but um, what what are your thoughts on this? Um, so, I think um, I think in some state the the true impact of Brexit is yet to be seen on the industry. At the risk of sounding stupid, you know, people are probably trying to concentrate on their home markets first before they 
um, expand. I think the other thing I would say is Brexit makes things harder. The passport regime is gone, but it does not make things impossible. You know, if you want a European business, you can still go set up that European business. Wouldn't have been as easy as passporting under your existing UK license, but it's still perfectly doable. And uh, the costs are not prohibitive and the running of the two separate entities is also feasible. So it makes things trickier, but it's it hasn't killed the abilities for companies to do that. So I suspect it's a mixture of um time still needs to play out. But if, if people need to go there, they, they can go there. It won't it won't render European based business plans unviable, in my view. I mean Sophie's probably got a better feel for that than I do. No, I I think um that there's a couple of reasons why we should all still be really excited. Um by the UK as a prospect for for startups. Um, one is the fact that we are a, an interesting place in terms of there's a huge hub um, in London where you're co- you're connecting banks with regulators with cap- with with startups that are kind of all sitting in the same place. Um, we're also at this point where the sector's really maturing. Um, I think so. In 2021, the UK startups raised um, 18 billion USD, which is three times higher than the same period, this is H1 of um, of 2020. And we're seeing a lot more of these sort of mega rounds, which pre- previously were US and um, China. We were really only seeing that. Whereas now, you know, we're seeing the likes of Revolut um, and Hopin raising over 100 million in one round. And then we're starting to see exits, like really strong exits coming from from the UK as well. Um, sort of Dark Trace was, was a good example there. And so all of that means that we as a country are becoming a lot more attractive to overseas investors as well. Um, and they're also looking to take advantage of of what was historically lower valuations than the US, um, but now obviously are increasing. So I think that um, you know it's uh, there's still a lot of excitement and opportunity within the UK ecosystem, and I think we're really punching above our weight given everything that's going on recently. And of course, Richard has just raised more than 100 million um, pounds. So we, <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I think Revolut was like 800 million, so uh, a touch bigger. Um, it's fair to say that sure. was a monster round. Um, but I think the point of valuation is, is an interesting one, right? I mean, I, I do a bunch of angel investing and I kind of look what's happened to, well, it's now called pre seed, used to be called seed. But like uh, <laughs> the valuation that used to be at seed is now what's called pre seed, and like the valuation at seed is now what used to be series A, right? So that's like three years ago that, that, that's changed in that period. So it's, that's, that's pretty stark, actually. I like some of it's opportunity, but some of it is scarcity as well, I think. If I could just pick up on a point that Sophie made, um, you know, I do think one advantage the UK has is the regulatory environment here and in particular the attitude of the regulator. You know, our regulator has a statutory obligation to promote competition. Uh, and I think over the last uh, five to 10 years, you've seen it acting on it as well. Um, and I do think that differentiates us from other regulatory environments. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree now. I mean, having, when I worked at Revely, I was sort of running a bunch of stuff. One of the things was all of their um, kind of expansion country-wise licenses and so on. So it was really interesting to kind of have a sort of a whole series of conversations running with people, with regulators all around the world and see kind of how the approach is contrasted. And I won't name the <laughs> the bad, but I would kind of praise the UK and, and actually Lithuania as being um, sort of very um, sensible and proportionate how they approach things. 
I think it's a really interesting point you made, uh, Naz, about the the competition mandate, um, because that does definitely change the, the regulations. Though I'm tempted to suggest you were just trying to row back from your earlier comment that the FCA hadn't been smart. <laughs> oh, I love the FCA. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, let's move on then to um, our final sort of big story, um, which comes from uh, Afterpay, which has uh, released uh, or introduced uh, buy now, pay later for subscription services in the United States and Australia. And this came from um, payments.com, payments. It's one of those words spelt without any um, spelt without any uh, vowels, a bit like Aberdeen, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the asset manager. Anyway, so buy now, pay later company Afterpay has unveiled a subscription solution, allowing customers to pay for recurring purchases in installments, which is kind of what a subscription was. Uh, the feature lets uh, users pay for recurring purchases such as gym memberships, entertainment subscriptions, and online services in installments. Uh, the uh, the company announced the service in a news release this week, saying it would launch early next year in the United States and Australia. Uh, various merchants, including IPSY, BoxyCharm, Savage, Xfenty, and Fabletics, will be among the first to offer subscription payments. Afterpay says that in the longer term, it plans to bring the subscription service to in-store payments and to other regions, including Canada, New Zealand, uh, the United Kingdom, and Europe. So, um, another buy now, pay later story. Um, buy now, pay later versus uh, sort of paying now. Um, I'm sort of listening to this, listening to this story, and thinking, well, surely subscriptions were already in installments. Um, what's new? Is this is this clever marketing, or is there something more here? Let me, let me jump in. I mean, listen, I, I, I'm not sure I totally get it, to be honest. Like, I think I get buy now, pay later, and I get pay now. I, I try and be the the payment button for what is an ever-complicated kind of growing range of payment options on, on checkout. Um, I'm not sure I get how, like, a subscription is by definition, like, broken up into installments anyway, right? That's kind of the point, I thought, rather than paying for the thing up front. So, I sort of, the, the t- taking like a monthly payment and breaking the installments, I'm not, I'm not sure I totally get it, but maybe it's maybe it's market specific to the, the markets they've launched in. So, someone might need to explain it to me otherwise. Yeah, the only thing that I can think might be interesting is if you pay for a subscription yearly, you get it cheaper. Uh, but then if you don't have the cash flow to do that, obviously, then you would have to pay a, a larger amount. So actually breaking, it's like getting something cheaper and then en- enabling you to spread the cash flow is potentially quite interesting. Big emphasis on the potentially. <laughs> yeah, that makes some sense. If it is yearly, that's pretty, I mean, normally like most like subscription businesses are their monthly charge, right? So I mean, yeah, if it's, if it's yearly, I mean, that's actually a pretty long-standing industry where like, I know, you get, actually in SME world, right, you get... Um, insurance premium finance where like if you're paying 20 grand of insurance premium for your professional indemnity you can get it, get it broken up to installments so yeah if it's that kind of yearly kind of big ticket subscription um in inverted commas then i get it uh, and that's kind of actually a fairly traditional form of financing but if it's like a monthly subscription i'm not sure quite how you you finance that in installments <laughs> i think i think part of it may be to do with the way people are paid in australia and uh the United States, because whereas people in the UK and most European countries tend to earn salaries monthly, in the States, it's much more com- it's more common to get weekly wages, and Australians apparently get paid fortnightly. And so that could result in a sort of mismatch between your monthly subscriptions and your, your weekly paycheck or your fortnightly 
um, pay. So that that may be part of the logic. But that's going to bring it right back into the hotspot of affordability of the regulators, right? Because what you're saying there is that they can't actually, I mean, a fairly small money. Payday lending? Can't, yeah, it's basically payday lending, right? And you're going to build a debt spirals. That's, that's, that's a, that sounds like a bad route. I've kind of seen that movie before a few years ago. Yeah, Naz, I imagine you've got no opinions whatsoever oh. on, on this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the idea in practice. I'm sure there is a market out there. Why haven't they done it? I can see the regulatory issues all over the place. Like at the end of the day, it is lending. You will have all the affordability issues from a consumer regulatory point of view. Um, and you'll have all the credit risk issues from a lender point of view. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I can see it blowing up in people's faces uh, from both of those angles. I'm not saying it will, but at some stage, regulators will wake up to both of those issues and want to know what they're doing. And in my experience, that's generally two or three years after there's a problem. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny on proposals like this in due course right? when precisely that is we'll have to see i suppose the question is to your point it's going to blow up in people's faces is it going to blow up in the faces of the people using these services or is it going to blow up in the faces of these services themselves um uh i'm i'm sorry to say it, it traditionally is in the faces of the people using it and then the service providers eventually because i think you know this will only get uh media and therefore regulatory scrutiny once it starts goes wrong for people uh, you know and by definition that's often post-event sadly I, I agree with what richard was saying about you know we've we've seen this sort of movie before we know we kind of know how this can end why, why are regulators being slow do we think i mean you know yes it's a, it's a bit of a regulatory loophole because it's not strictly a lending but well, yeah, it, i think that's the point is it's not part of the regulatory perimeter so they have no power to act certainly in the UK. Um, whereas you see people like Monzo, who are a bank, therefore within the regulatory net, doing BNPL and being careful around things like affordability. So yeah, I think the whole thing of buying up LA was just, listen, there's some great product innovation, really is right. And that whole sort of checkout experience is a, is a big problem to solve for um, both customer and merchant. Um, so there's value here, but like you can't go down like a debt spiral thing where you just getting some vulnerable customers into increasing debt, uh, that's just not a good place to go. And uh, we have seen that movie before, unfortunately. And like, if that's where this ends up, if by now, it's, it's, it's a disaster. So I guess just really, really hope <laughs> people running these firms to kind of um, uh, keep, keep the focus on the, the value creation via the take friction out and improve that checkout experience rather than yeah, just kind of um, arbitrage regulation around affordability. I think, you know, I think by definition, the, t the type of target market that wants this type of product is the type of target market that is more likely to have affordability issues than the general population because they need this type of service. So it does carry a high degree of risk. I, I think the other, the other point I'd add on regulators um, catching up uh, outside of the remit point, which I completely agree with, like they're not going to go there unless it's in their remit resources and proportionality you know the regulator only has so many bullets and it won't it won't fire them on something like this until until there is a problem it has to deal with regulators really don't have the ability to i know th th this is a stupid thing to say but they don't have the ability to preemptively nip these things in the bud often because they just don't get onto their radar 
um, until they've hit a certain volume. Sophie, do you think investors are getting cold feet at all about buy now, pay later? I mean, it's it's been sort of all the rage in the news, but are investors being a bit more discriminating? No, absolutely not, I would say. Um, I think it's a, you know, like Richard said, there's there's a lot of real value add um, in terms of the checkout experience. There's also a real opportunity in B2B buy now, pay later. Um, we've got an investment in a company called Hakodo that offers it um, within sort of B2B marketplaces, um, you know, increasing in conversion um, and then uh, spreading of cash flow, which is a really big problem if you're a, an SME and you're growing quickly and you need to acquire inventory or stock, for example. Um, so actually, it is it is facilitating business, both on the consumer and on the business side, um, which is which is a good thing. That's why this this story is, is a little bit jarring because it feels like it's almost doing something that it doesn't need to do when it's, it, there's actually offering a lot of value and in its core product. Um, when it feels like we should be like focusing on that aspect rather than trying to squeeze out every sort of last ability to, to offer people these debts. Um, but, you know, like I say, I don't know the Australian market, so maybe it's more interesting than I'm, than I'm seeing from the, from the does, side. Does, it does feel like the BNPL players are sort of racing to differentiate themselves from each other, you know, as they're increasingly competing for merchants and so on, and that they're trying to stand out. I think, I think, Sophie, it, it does touch on, a, on an interesting wider point. With all of these products and all of the mis-selling scandals that one sometimes eventually sees for them, you know, the actual product for the right type of customer who has that need is often a very, very good, useful product. I cut my teeth on payment protection insurance not selling it, tidying up the mess. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you have that need, it's a very sensible product. It, it's when people then try to squeeze every last ounce of juice to it and sell it to uh, every man, woman and their dog that when you get into trouble. But it, it doesn't mean the actual initial concept behind it for the right target market is flawed. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Kind of the, Things always get driven to extreme, don't they? Like by competitive pressure, and that—that's the danger, right? That's why I think if you're running these firms, you've got to stay focused on creating real value, not just getting pushed to the extremes. Any closing thoughts, Sophie? Um, no, I think um, it's it's interesting. This we kind of goes harks back to our question around growth at any cost, um, and when you when you are driven by growth at any cost, then maybe that's when you start doing things um, that that maybe don't make sense uh, for a consumer point of view. Uh, but actually, I think you know. There is a stronger lens on these, these these fintech companies, and they are held held to account now. And, and so, you know, it could be just product, you know, product innovation that that may or may not work. You know, companies try new products all the time. Some work, some don't, and 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 kind of not taking. They have to kind of experiment to stay alive, and and some won't work. And you know, that's that's kind of the way that these businesses grow. Innovation in innovation, uh, in public view, in practice, test and learn. Okay, so now for the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week uh, that we don't have time to cover in depth, um, but still deserve a shout out. Naz, uh, do you want to get us started? Yeah, so I thought I'd mention Thought Machine closing its uh, most recent £200 million rounds. Thought Machine describes itself as a cloud-native core banking technology firm, and is selling cloud-based infrastructure to older new banks as they look to look away from mainframe legacy banking tech. This round follows its 83 million Series B round last year, 
and it describes its marketing cap as increasingly healthy. And this round takes them up to their 1 billion valuation, meaning they reach unicorn status. The Series C was led by Nike partners with other new investors, including ING Ventures, JP Morgan Chase, and Standard Chartered Ventures. Say so the investment arms are some of their global tier one banking clients. Uh, and this Series C follows a period of accelerated growth for Thought Machine, uh, with them noting that they've added 200 new employees since 2020, and they're locating into a larger London HQ to house them all. Um, so, I mean, you know, my thoughts on this would be their fundraising track record is very impressive. I don't think it's any accident that some of their investors in this later round are some of their potential clients. Probably still yet to see proof in terms of a major rollout of their platform in anger with large scale volumes. Um, so, you know, watch this space and let's see how they spend that money and whether they can uh, convert it into significant numbers of volumes of customers being supported by them. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so next we have India's Slice, which has become a unicorn with $220 million in funding from Tiger Global, Insight Partners and Advent. This is from TechCrunch. So Slice, which was valued at under $200 million in a financing round in June this year, has just raised $220 million, um, which gives it a valuation of over a billion uh, dollars. Slice has established itself as one of the market-leading card-issuing firms in India. The startup offers a, a number of cards that are aimed at tech-savvy young professionals in India, which of course is vast. Um, Tiger Global and Insight Partners co-led the Series B round. The market of credit cards in India is, is huge, but remains untapped. The potential, so the potential is huge. Um, so with nearly a billion Indians having a bank account, only a tiny fraction of the population is covered by the emerging credit rating system. Um, so to me, this is a really, really interesting story. Uh, India obviously has, you know, huge, huge population, increasingly, uh, you know, you've got a, a sort of large middle-class population, increasingly wealthy, um, starting to tap into new products. And this is a lovely example, I think, of seeing uh, investing in, in countries around the world embracing fintech as we see the population embracing fintech creating huge opportunity for companies that tap into those opportunities quickly um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, paytm and you know, the, the slightly disappointing ipo um, but i think we're going to see a lot more activity from india it's such a vibrant such a vibrant market um, and we actually covered it in uh, episode 581 of our fintech insider insight show so we had guests from tide india and financial inclusion platform salt so if you're interested in learning more about um, fintech in india have a listen to that episode um nas back to you for a third story sure this story is from the fintech times moneybox and plaid give customers greater control of their finances so Moneybox, the app-based digital wealth manager, is partnering with open banking platform Plaid to make transfers faster and give customers control over their payments and finances. With the help of Plaid's payment initiation, Moneybox has recently introduced an instant payments option for customers who want to top up their accounts in a matter of minutes. So to find out more about this partnership, we reached out to Karen Kerrigan, Chief Operating Officer at Moneybox, for a little bit more information. Hello, it's Karen, COO of Moneybox. Sadly, I can't be with you today, but wanted to give you a quick update on a partnership we've recently kicked off with Plaid. Over the last few months, Moneybox has been working with Plaid to give our customers greater visibility and control over their payments. 
by making transfers faster. More than 700,000 people have chosen to save and invest in excess of £2 billion through Moneybox, across a range of products, including stocks and shares, ISAs, and pensions. Until now, customers have been able to make direct debit payments to their Moneybox accounts by rounding up their spending, weekly deposits, monthly payday boosts, and one-off payments. Whilst a lot of progress has been made in online payments in recent years, some points of friction remain when processing payments through direct debit. This can result in it taking a number of days for customers' funds to be transferred from their bank account into their Moneybox account. With the help of Plaid's payment initiation, we recently introduced an instant payments option across a number of products. Open banking integration will be key for our customers who want to top up their accounts in a matter of minutes, for example, when a customer needs to speedily transfer money into their ISA ahead of the tax year end. This partnership enables us to be responsive and to accommodate our customers' needs. And we always work hard to ensure that the integration of new services is as intuitive as possible. Looking forward, Plaid and Moneybox have lots of exciting plans on how to use open banking technology to enable new functionality and further improvements to the in-app customer experience. So, a very interesting story. I, you know, I definitely think that type of functionality will make things a lot easier for their customers, without a doubt. So it will just be interesting to see what impact that has on um, their savings levels over the next few months and years. Okay, so let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. Um, so this comes from the BBC News, and it is that Mr. Gox, the crypto trading hamster, has died. Um, so the hamster, who shot to internet fame for his ability to often outperform human investors using a specially built trading cage, sadly died on Tuesday. The furry financier's official Twitter account announced the hamster's death to his 18,000 followers on social media. The hamster's financial career and subsequent fame was born of an experiment by two friends in Germany who wanted to prove the randomness of success in digital currencies. Mr. Gox's trading office, which is attached to his regular cage, was watched by thousands on a Twitch live stream. And he would famously make decisions by running on his intention wheel to select which cryptocurrency he'd like to trade, and subsequently entering either a buy or a sell tunnel on his office floor. Gox began his trading career on the 12th of June, 2021. After his final day of trading on the 22nd of November, his portfolio was up 19.7%, and he had made about 98 euros <laughs> in profit. Um, following his death, Mr. Gox's human owners tweeted, Thank you and rest in peace, Max, aka Mr. Gox. You will be missed and your memory will live forever on the blockchain. So <laughs> who would like to take that one? Um, Sophie, how about you? What are your thoughts? I just don't know how I'm going to choose my cryptocurrencies now, you know? Like, what am I going to do? Anthemus, I, that was a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I, I mean, when you say it, it outperformed uh, some humans, I mean, it outperformed Warren Buffett, <laughs> apparently. So, um, yeah, I mean, it just it just shows you how, how crazy uh, the crypto world is at the moment. But obviously really sad. If anyone hasn't seen the hamster, look at the article. He's like adorable. And it's really sad. Surely the next step's got to be uh, doing an NFT. Oh yeah, Mister Gox, like yeah, and selling that off. That's the only way to do a, a, a crypto funeral. That's definitely definitely coming. I'm interested by the point about beating Buffett though, because um, I mean, for all that Warren Buffett is an amazing investor, I mean, 
doesn't this to some extent show how, you know, the economy has shifted and, you know, the value investors are really struggling, you know, in the current environment of, of sort of growth and, and new industries and, and so on. Actually, you know, things like cryptocurrencies are passing more traditional investors by in some senses. Yeah, well, listen, I, 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 I guess I have to fess up to having completely screwed up crypto myself. So I, I have been in crypto for a little bit and I made a bit of money on it. But like, um, I remember... I met Mickey Malka Ribbit back in the end of 2013. He was, he was very big on Bitcoin back then. I was like, oh, just put like a thousand pounds in. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> if only I had. <laughs> I don't know what that's worth right now. I've never even gone and done the calculation, but it's, it's going to be quite a decent number, right? So, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, yeah, I think people have been long crypto for quite a while. Uh, I've done pretty well. Is this, I mean, is there, is there a warning here? Um, you know, because you know this was this was intended as a joke at the expense of crypto, right? Because he was named after sort of Mount Cox, you know, the, the, the crypto exchange that, that that went that went sort of bust and uh, resulted in lots of Bitcoin being stolen. But you know, has the sort of joke rebounded because actually the crypto market's been so successful subsequently? I think it's it's dangerous, isn't it? Like like all of this sort of crypto stuff, you'll get people. It was on BBC News this story, right? So you'll get people reading this this story and thinking, "Oh, this is, sounds like a really great place to put my capital." And and then you get people who who don't have capital to lose putting it in things, NFTs, etc., with no real backing because it only goes up. Um, and then we'll have a you know it'll crash or have a correction and people will lose a lot of money. Uh, and, and you know, the people who kind of, you know, it just it means that kind of the everyday person might be at a loss where the people who've made quite a lot of money are are the kind of elite few. So, yeah, it could be potentially a bit worrying. Yeah, it's a good warning. Naz, what do you think? The people or hamsters who made money. Yeah, exactly. Hamsters have been killing it in the last couple of years. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll have to watch, out, look out for the next, uh, the next trading trading pet uh, to replace uh, Mr. Gox. Okay, so that wraps up uh, this week's news show. Thank you so much uh, to all of our guests. You've been fantastic. Thank you. Where can people find out more about you? Um, so let's start, uh, Sophie, with you. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood, or you can find out more about. Anthemus, and if you're an early stage startup, please get in touch. Um, just go on um, anthemus.com. And Richard? Best place is LinkedIn, pretty active on that. So shoot me a message. And Naz? Uh, I, I also have a LinkedIn profile, although I'm a notorious for not doing social media. Uh, but it's there. It will just be three years out of date. <laughs> Fantastic. And as for me, Benjamin, uh, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. So thank you all so much for listening. Um, please join the conversation on social media, though not with Naz, um, or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Bye-bye.